Hi, Pavel. The question is, what was your first computer? Uh, well, my first computer was uh, Pentium 1, actually, because I'm pretty young. So uh, it was the machine I was playing Duke Nukem 3D on. Mm -hmm. And it was a second-hand machine. And at the time, it was already like five years old. So that's the fir very first machine I owned. How old were you? Uh, I believe when I got my first very own PC, I was like 12. Okay. And uh, which Pentium was it? So you, you remember the speed? Yes, yes. It was 75 megahertz. Ah, I had it exactly the, the same. I had exactly the same. I think there was one before with 60 megahertz, but I got already the 75. Yes. Well, at the time, I didn't really care about the speed or like wanted to do is just to play the games and it could handle them really well so yeah and um you just uh use it for gaming all the time or what was your road to first hello world uh my hello first hello world was actually much 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 later at the age like 17 when a friend introduced me to programming it was a trial and error uh approach basically in the very beginning i was trying to hack some HTML first, then I tried some JavaScript, etc., etc. But that was still the age of uh, every website had a clock, so okay. it was still it was still amazing, amazing time to start developing. So that was my first Hello World, I believe. I don't, I really remember it really blurry. Which which year was it? Two thousand and five. Okay, so it's a. Uh early for the i would say somehow early for the modern web stuff right and uh about your friend so did your friend force you to program or you had interests or why you started at all actually he just showed me because at the time nobody ever ever showed me uh how to program a computer i had no formal education and uh, he was an online friend at first and then we met uh, mm -hmm. in in prague uh, in czech republic Mm -hmm. uh, and we spent like half a day uh, when he showed me some programming stuff. And at the time, it was really magic for me. And I really wanted to do this. I okay. really badly wanted to do it. So this was my first steps. So it was your online friend. So you use, uh, so you met for gaming with him and then met? Yes, yes. We met, okay. we met in, a, in a game. It was Quake 3 at the time. Okay. Okay, cool. And then what happened? So you started hacking JavaScript or... I mean, no, actually, then there was a big uh, nothing for almost two years, let's say. Mm -hmm. And uh, then after high school, because at the time I was on high school or I just entered high school and the high school was mostly about economics and modeling. And it was there was no computer, no computer science at all. But after high school, I decided to join the same faculty, the same university as this, my former friend who introduced me to computers and programming in general. And then I joined the very same faculty and started with computer science from scratch. Oh, so, so you started twice? Yes, yes. I had to start twice, basically. But the second start was really quick one. Uh -huh. And did, uh, could you skip, you know, the first part? So in Germany, what is sometimes possible? So if you study the second time, you could skip, I think, the first three semesters because it's like, you know, the base uh, st stuff. Could you skip something or you had to know to, to redo everything? Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. That's 
a huge misunderstanding. Actually, I had to start twice because on high school I had no guidance and he just showed me some stuff. I was still experimenting, but internet connection was not available all the time at the time for me. So I just fell behind. And after high school, I joined a university and then I started again with proper guidance and with proper uh, education. Yeah, sure. But you you started first, you know, business and the second time uh, computer science, I guess, right? No, the business school was high school. College ah, was okay. computer science. Ah, very good. So you studied once computer science. Okay, now yes, I got yes. it. Okay, cool. Um, so you're a proper educated, you know, uh, informatic guy, right? Uh, yes, hopefully, yes. <laughs> yeah. And which university was it? Was it in Prague? No. Uh, no, it wasn't in Prague. This was a much smaller university in Hradec Králové. Uh, that's a city in Czech Republic. And it was faculty of informatics. So the whole faculty was dedicated to computer science. Hey, cool. So, and, and then you started pro- proper programming, right? So, so, so now you started from scratch. Uh, really yes. Yeah. yes. Then I started uh, properly with the theoretical stuff first, which I really enjoyed. Oh, really? I, so, yeah, I found myself in it I, because the whole course, the computer science course is much more about theory than about coding, which I really, I still like it. I used to like it and I really found myself in this area. So I started with Java. That's what I remember, but we went really deeper and much more low level afterwards. Which version of Java was it? Uh, 1.6 at the time. Okay, cool. So you already uh, had the chance, you know, to start with annotations and uh, generics and the newer stuff, right? Yes, yes. Cool. So what was your second Hello World? So the first one was uh, hacking a HTML page. So what was the second Hello World? I assume with Java, right? Uh, no, in the middle, there was a game. It was called, it was a Czech game, actually, Operation Flashpoint. And there was a scripting language inside. Uh-huh. And... Uh, just what, what, what was it? Lua or what scripting language? No, was they it? had their their own version of. Uh, okay. It was something in the middle of between C and, and JavaScript, I would say. Okay. So it it was really nice to play around with the game. So that was my probably second Hello World before the college. And what you could do with the game then? So I mean, uh, anything you, yeah? you could rotate a tank like a helicopter. You could do anything. It was really powerful. Okay. So you could uh, remote control the game, so kind of, right? So there yes, was one... yes, you could script missions, you could script the soldiers, the so-called AI at the time. You could do anything. Okay. Okay, so then you uh, were there like functions available already or was it like, you know, uh, just a pile of code? Uh, no, there were plenty of functions available, mm-hmm. but some of them were still missing or provided by the community. So it was part of the fun, actually. If you don't do it for money, then you just want to create a lot of stuff on your own. So yeah, there was a lot of prepared functions in the game already, mm-hmm. but the game at the time was, I would say, out of maintenance. So we had to do a lot of things on our own. Oh, is it, was it a kind of open source game? No, 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 no. It was never open source, as far as I know. It was okay. a commercial product. Pretty okay. successful, I would say. So what was then your third Hello World? Uh, that was definitely the university. That was the proper Hello World. That was a uh, Java program. And, uh, it was a register for cars, I would say. It was a project in the very first semester we had to create. Mm-hmm. So I believe I still have the code. Okay. Somewhere. So was it client server? Was just client? What was it? 
No, it was a Swing application. It was a desktop application. And the main point of it was to introduce the students, us, uh, into object-oriented programming. It was the very beginner's course. Okay, and you like that? I really like that. I really like that. Hey, cool. And uh, what was your first, you know, server-side experience, also at university, or? Yes, in the third year, uh, we had a proper introduction to Enterprise Java. Okay. And I really liked the concepts because it was, again, taught really in a theoretical way. So we learned how it's all based on servlets, how servlets um, are the basement for everything else. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that's how I started with Java EE. And then I, long story short, I grew up on people like you and then. So, the, so it seems like uh, at the university, you had a lot of fun with your professors. Or you had a good profs, right? Yeah, it was a small, small class, rather small. Actually, there were like 150 people starting and uh, properly finishing eight. So, so it numbers. was exact, exactly the same in my case. So as I started, there were 180 students, so there was not enough room for all us. So I remember I was just in the corner. I couldn't see anything. And at the end, we were no more than 15. So I, I think like 12 students. And uh, there was an extremely small group. So this was uh, interesting, actually. Yeah, I believe some people some people actually finished the school later, a little bit later, one or two years. But I'm not really in touch with them, so I have no idea. But properly in time, there were eight people finishing. Okay. And what was your first project, uh, enterprise project at school? Uh I am not sure if I remember that. Uh, the very first one was probably some some uh, semestral work, so mm -hmm. not, not important. It was all based on servlets, and we were creating some some basically just experimenting. That that was it. But my first commercial project uh, that was for a company in Prague, and I was hired. It was my second job. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used uh, at the time we used Java EE six. Okay. And it was a backend uh, for a banking company, mm -hmm. uh, and the backend had to pump data from from the database and uh, send it via REST API to a mobile devices. Mm -hmm. And which server was it? Uh, at the time, they had WebLogic. Okay. And which uh, year? I have no idea. I don't remember. But it was like two thousand. 10, I suppose, or 8 or something like this. I believe it was, it, yeah, yeah. It, you mean the year I did this? Or the year of, the release year of the WebLogic server? Okay, but it was after your uh, university. So I just, for me, it's interesting. No, it was during university. Ah, during university. So you did the commercial projects during your study? Yeah, of course. Actually, I was working uh, full-time during the last two years of, of my studies. So it was mm -hmm. really, it was hell on earth, but. Hey, I, I had exactly the same experience. So I studied full-time during, uh, I worked full-time during my study. It was hell on earth. And I was so happy that my study, you know, uh, I, I tried to, you know, study as fast as possible, you know, to, to, to shorten the hell a little bit. And then I was really happy and I just have to work because doing both at the same time was, was terrible. You just don't have time to do both properly, so 
yeah. That's that's exactly or or almost exactly the same story with me, except I really like the academia, so I try to stay there for a little bit of time more. Okay, cool. And um so you use Java six with uh WebLogic and uh you started study when which year? Two thousand five you said? Uh no, that was high school. That was high school. So I started 2000, 2000, uh, 2010. There was one year okay. between high school and college where I and had to work. And you started four years? Uh, no, five years. Five years, so 2015. So someone in between, you started your first commercial project uh, with WebLogic, Java 6, and uh, JaxOS, right? Yes, yes, there was JaxOS involved. And uh, was it... Was it successful or, or not? What it was really successful, of course, of course. It, was, <laughs> yeah, of it course. wasn't. So what how can you go wrong with JaxRS? I mean, I had uh, as I perform code reviews from time to time, and uh, sometimes, as you know, JaxRS projects with no kidding, I would say three layers of uh, empty stuff, just mapping back and forth without any additional you know added value so a, a lot can go wrong if you are not you know if you are not pragmatic oh really? okay that's that seems like a sad story but at the time actually it was my infrastructure and oh, cool. uh, i as an experienced student i was inspired by some other projects uh, from bitbucket at the time and i basically learned by experience so i did a lot of mistakes in the very beginning which was uh I don't know, two or three weeks, and I had to rework a lot of stuff, but then I ended up with just one layer at the REST API mm -hmm. layer at the JAXRS. We had uh, our own details there because they could change, mm -hmm. of course. And then there was one only one DTO from the database and mapping between it. And of course, some logic, the project was not only about mapping, but okay. there was a lot of business logic, logic added later. But yeah, it was simple as that. Yeah, it was always productive, so your clients were happy. Yeah, the project, the, the very first version, was finished in two months. Was it was it good, right? So I mean, it could be. Yeah, it, it worked really well. There were other problems on on the project, like the API on the bank side changed a lot, mm -hmm. a lot. So, mm -hmm. but that wasn't really our fault, and uh, because the project actually had one big advantage. Uh, later, it was transformed into Java E seven, which was no, no big deal, but. I wasn't at the company at the time. I was just consulting for, for um, a few weeks there. And what we did was we involved a project called, called Enunciate, which generated the REST API documentation for us completely for free. We just made it a part of the Maven build. We used mm -hmm. Maven at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was really for free. So every change was documented right away for the mobile device developers to embrace it. And that was it. Yeah, Enunciate is still interesting. So it's actually a great uh, little open source project. I have to admit, I haven't used it for a year, maybe. So I'm happy it's mm -hmm. still around. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, uh, and how you proceed from that? So this was your first project. Was the next, or what you did then? So the first was successful. It was Java six at, at the bank. So what you did then? Uh, then I changed my job actually mm -hmm. because of money, of course. Mm -hmm. So uh, I felt like more more senior, let's say, and I was happy to join a m more of a challenge, I would mm -hmm. say. So then it was mobile mobile development again, but for a different company. And basically, we have been building backends in the very same manner uh, I've just described, but it was more challenging. It was bigger projects. The schedule was tight. Uh, and then I had 
on my project, I use Java EE, and uh, then we used a lot of Spring on the other projects because I wasn't the only developer in the company. Mm-hmm. So, so what was your experience with both? So you did then you started with Java EE, and then you did Spring. So, uh, so what yeah, your... I actually, I actually always, I prefer always prefer Java EE. Uh, especially at the time, because I had no experience with what some other people call as the, I don't know, old, fat, obsolete uh, enterprise Java beans, which, and you had to create like five classes just to make some business logic happen. I jumped on the train when Java E6 was out. Java E7 was almost out at the time, mm-hmm. almost widespread. So I used that and the experience was flawless for me. And uh, for me, the key, say, the most important stuff in Java E was CDI and Java REST. Mm-hmm. And that's what made me, made me jump on the Java E train because CDI was much more developed at the time than Spring. Spring was still really cool. It had some cool uh, features. Java E had its caveats also, but CDI and JaxRS were the strong foundation for me as a developer, because at the time I didn't really understand the internal mechanics. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I just used Java E and it was far more simple for me. So that's actually interesting because, uh, yeah. And it start... was lighter. It was lighter and it was faster to work with. I didn't oh, have is... to... Okay, how long, uh, this is interesting actually, uh, how long did you know the uh, average deployment took in, in your experience and why it was faster than Spring or how fast or slow was Spring? Yeah, Spring was extremely slow. It was like half a, half a minute to start the Spring projects we had. It could be done better, so 50% of, of the failures there was just ex- inexperienced developers or stupid developers. That's why I quit the company uh, a year after I joined it, but <laughs> okay. Okay. yeah, I, I, okay. I was, I just said, I, I, I'm no longer doing it because there were, these people were pushing me into these spring projects. And I, when I did a change, I had to reload it for half a minute while okay. redeploying on Wildfly because I was using Wildfly at the time, that was my architecture. So I, I just chose Wildfly because of the lazy loading and of libraries into memory. It was really lightweight. And it took me, if it was a JSF project, because we also had websites. Mm-hmm. So the JSF took uh, over a second and the redeployment of normal JaxRS API project, uh, if you don't count the building phase in was uh, under a second, definitely, maybe half a second. So before I could switch to the browser or switch to Postman, which is what we used at the time, it was already redeployed and I could just test it. That yeah. was it. This is also my experience. And my project is um, a little bit slower. So the project are, are, are bigger. So it takes usually at most three seconds, I would say. And I get lots of questions, conferences, which tool are, are you using and... Uh, Deployment is slow, and it was actually never slow in my case, and I don't use anything, and it's just fast, you know, out of the box. And uh, this, therefore, I ask you the question, because it cannot be that I'm the only, you know, with a guy who, who has fast yeah, deployments and, and, is, and is all others, you know, advice. struggling with the slow stuff. So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, my experience is same as yours. We had a 180 megabytes uh, web archive mm-hmm. uh, with Spring inside, deployed on Tomcat. Mm-hmm. And it was held to, uh, it was held to develop. It was held to, uh, deploy. There was a, 
log of, I don't know, thousands of lines before it even started with no real value inside. And then I had this Java EE project nobody liked at first, at first, then <laughs> a lot of people started to like it. But then everybody was skeptical and in the very first beginning and they were like, oh no, we are going to use Java E, but that's so fat and obsolete and then so slow. But I was, I mean, I was young and stupid. So I just picked whatever worked best for me and then it, it worked. So you were not that stupid. You were probably young, but you know, more pragmatic. But uh, how, how big was your war? My war was a few hundreds of kilobytes, uh, but... The JSF projects were bigger because there were some images and graphics inside, yeah, so that yeah, sure. was the, over the 10 assets. megabytes. Okay, but cool. the code so was hundreds of kilobytes. And and the uh, developers liked the Java experience afterwards, or what was you know some developers transitioned to Java E, or what was the story then? Some of them liked it. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them even transitioned, and uh, some of them no, never, never. So th there was a huge war. Okay, <laughs> war of frameworks, and then I then I just. Then I said, okay, I quit. I don't okay. care. Okay. And the project was in Prague? Uh, the project was in Prague, partially, yes. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, okay, then, then you quit the company. And it was still at the university, right? Uh, yes. It was about <laughs> time. Yes, I was still at the university. I was still a student. Uh -huh. So, But I was about to end the education. So mm -hmm. I remember implementing one, one of the bug fixes when I had the final exam, like the really big one, and they decide whether you're a pass or you're a failure. So uh, I took a two day off vacation. So I passed the exam and then I finished some final work and then I quit. Okay. <laughs> and Okay. So then what happened after university? Were you a freelancer? You joined another company? So what was the story then? Uh, then actually I wanted to do uh, Java EE, but I digged really deeper because then I started to have time with the university finished. And I also joined a little bit of a PhD. So uh, I continued with statistics. I had a lot of interests, but I really wanted to continue with Java EE because it helped me every day in my life being, being so easy to use. Mm -hmm. So I found a new work. Uh, this time a good one, I would say. And then the team was really a good match. Uh, it was also in Prague. Mm -hmm. And we had a nice time for like two years. Mm -hmm. With maybe, Java E maybe. or without? It was Java E. Yes, yes, it was Java E. And a proper Java E. I mean, pragmatic, small wars, thin wars, fast deployments, or just a crazy project, you know, with endless layers and superfluous framework. So it was the... Pragmatic Java, I assume. It was the pragmatic one because we were creating mostly new projects. Cool. When I joined the company, I was given the opportunity to start a new project for one of the customers. Mm -hmm. So we created it exactly like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, which, uh, what kind of business logic was it? Was it bank again or what was it? No, no, no. It was uh, telco this time. Okay. It was uh, about SIM cards It's as much okay. as I can tell. Okay, no, no, this is enough just to know. And by the way, your experience is consistent with experience I get with uh, fresh developers. So I uh, right now I help uh, a few startups to uh, uh, to be successful or you know to coach a little bit. And what they ask me constantly is why Java e is so productive and so fast. And the cool story is they don't care or know about the Java e internal stuff. They just use 
what I show them, and you don't you only need a little, you know, JAXRS, I view CDI uh, depend, uh, annotations, actually one CDI annotation. If you if you build backend, and then a little bit JSONB, sometimes transactions, and you are ready to go. And they just run, you know, stock Whitefly without any configuration. And uh, it is fast enough. So there was never trouble if you are pragmatic. So it seems like you had similar experience. So um, Yes, actually, is... that's that's exactly how I did it. Talk Wildfly. Mm -hmm. that's, that was the perfect starting point for us. It's easy to and fast to start. And without any configuration at all, if you have JPA, then, then you have to apply some drivers. But it could also be automatized as well. So it was really, really um, quick to start with. Yeah, I had the same stack basically, same stack. Yeah, cool. So, and the same project you had fun for two years, and then what happened? So the project uh, was then stopped. the project was ended. So okay, this time it wasn't my fault. And my boss, actually, his name was Martin Schmatz. So Martin, if you're listening, then thank you for for the good time. Uh, and our project was stopped, and uh, I went to some other company, mm -hmm. and still, which is Java. Uh, right now, uh, it's machine learning. Ah, this is the, the current company and before. Yes, this is the current company. And... and there was nothing in between? No, there was nothing in between. Okay, so what's interesting, uh, I know you a long time from various sources. So when we, uh, we met once in Prague, it was like, I think, Oracle Code Conference, and I delivered a keynote. So we had some funny moments there. And I had no opportunity to talk with you. But uh, before that, you pinged me several times. So when we met, you know, the first time in virtual space or in internet, so you remember that? So you sent me a tweet or whatever. So we are in contact for a long time already, right? Yeah. Actually, I was a close follower of your tutorials and your videos. Okay. I, at the time, after university, I really, really dug deep into Java EE and I kind of started to reverse engineer it. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I was looking what's under JCP and I really wanted to get it. So I started basically exploring a lot and your tutorials, videos, and not just yours, people like Reza Raman and, and other people really produce great content out there. So this is, and I believe I had some questions for you on Twitter. I don't really remember if it was Twitter, but I sent you a question about something and, and you helped help me out. Ah, so. what what I think, what it probably was, was the AirHex TV. Probably, yeah, yeah. Yes, This is the, exactly. the monthly YouTube show, which I usually do. This is the first Monday of the month, and then I know. So you ask, you know, frequent questions, and I try to answer them. Um, and this is how we how how we uh, are in, uh, in contact. Yeah. So the next time was uh, the Oracle Code keynote, where I was invited, and I just hexed all the time. And by the way... Uh, there were some people from the keynote joining the Java user group in Prague and still remember the keynote. Say so they expected you know, some slides and they just only saw code. And I did something with the Czech Critic. It's like this small creature, yeah. I remember. Yeah, I, I remember this small creature. <laughs> and that uh, was lots of fun. And um, how... So you you started in uh, Hradec, Kralove, you said. And you had yes, to, yes. And you had to travel to Prague. Uh, and I was working remotely. Ah, remotely. But how far is Prague and Hradec Kralove? Uh, that's 100 kilometers, but there is a highway. So, But we don't have a... Unlike in Germany, we have a speed limit here, which I no didn't always obey, but... Yeah. And, don't uh, tell anyone. 
No, no. Uh, how fast can you go? 120 kilometers per hour or 130? Uh, no, 130. Yeah, this is uh, the same as in Austria, I guess. So it's not a big problem. And uh, um, by the way, the, all these speed limits, you know, do not work anyway because uh, in Germany you could, in theory, go fast, but usually there are lots of road to works, so it actually doesn't matter. You always uh, probably your average, you know, average speed is uh, around 100 kilometers per hour. So regardless how fast you go, so it doesn't make any sense to go faster than 130. But um, why I'm asking? You uh, asked me to come to your, to visit your Java user group, and I always said no, but uh, we have to fix this one day. So if you have a Java user group in Hradec Kralove, 100 kilometers is doable, so I can fly to Prague and then visit you somehow with a car. So if you have something there, we can manage. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still in touch with the university, so, and yeah. they, would be, they would be happy. So, I w- so we have to do this. So I promised you this two years ago, and uh, I have um, so this autumn or next spring we you should, we could do something if you if you still like. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so let's keep that. So now you switch the company. So your your first Java proper project was over, and now you switch to a company which is uh, really interesting because the name is H two H two something H two AI H two AI. Is it a Czech company? No, it's a Silicon Valley startup. Cool. Uh huh. And I took Actually, it's, it's, it's yeah. much less of a startup than it was uh, almost two years ago when I joined the company, but it's still not a Fortune 500 company with thousands of employees. So, first, how, how you found them? Uh, well, that's an interesting story because one day, one day, usually you get a lot of phone calls from recruiters and they want you to join your company now. And I believe everybody gets thousands of them per day. And I got this really interesting phone call uh, from a recruiter and I don't know where she got the phone number, but somehow she called me and she really perfectly hit the very day I was told the project was ending. Uh My project was about to end and we were told at the, the very same day. And they said I was doing some PhD stuff at the time with statistics and he said, hey, there is this Silicon Valley startup and they are doing machine learning, which is a lot of statistics involved. So that's how I joined the company. It just I evaluated some other options and this one was simply the best. So that's why I joined them. Cool. And and there's a Silicon Valley machine learning startup and you are still in Hradec, Kralove. Uh, no, I'm based in Prague actually right now, but it's very difficult with me because I have part of my family is in Germany so I or near the German borders. So I travel there a lot. So okay. I'm I'm just I'm a distributed employee. Oh, okay, so you are distributed. Uh-huh. So uh, not cloud native, rather than how you, you yeah. not. But, you, yeah, yeah. We we do have an office in Prague. Mm-hmm. Oh, quite a big one actually. Okay. So, so we, they started the office there, and we have a, I believe, almost forty employees right now. But I might be mistaken. But it, it's actually a lot, and uh, the main HQ is still in Mountain View. Okay. So and. And now what's the deal? What they are doing? I mean, what is, you know, what would like to the company achieve this H2O? Uh, Actually, there is a funny story to how the company was created because at the very beginning, uh, it was just a distributed or just quote unquote, just uh, a distributed key value store. And uh, one interesting fact, uh, there was Cliff Click involved, Mm -hmm. the creator of JVM Hotspot. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day, 
they met a company which required some machine learning algorithms on top of this DKV. So that's how H2O was created, was found. And since then, uh, there was, it was uh, several years before I joined. And what we do basically, we have a, actually everything we do is open source. Let's mm -hmm. mention this first. So you can find us on GitHub. Mm -hmm. Just look up H2O and then and you will see the open source stuff. And uh, we do machine learning algorithms. Okay. On a, re a really big data. We have a distributed system. Uh, that was the short answer. We have a, a distributed software application system, call it however you want. And uh, you can, it does in-memory computing. It's a basically a really fast platform for in-memory computing. And it's a really general platform. And on top of that, we implement machine learning algorithms. Okay. And uh, everything is open source on how the company would like to earn some money? Uh, well, uh, we have a one product that's not open source. It's called driverless AI. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's actually paid from scratch. And then, of course, you can pay for support and for uh, consultancy as well. Yeah. And, and what is the added value of the driverless AI? Uh, it automates some stuff you have to do manually with the open source H2O. For example, feature engineering. Okay. It's, it's able to do a lot of stuff so, for you, so it, do the space exploration for you. So it increases the productivity by, you know, auto-adjusting the features or training models or something. Yes, exactly. It, and it's actually, it's much more than that. It integrates knowledge of a lot of Kaggle Grandmasters we have. And we have a lot of recipes there you can use to your advantage. And you would have to do this on your own with H2 Open Source. So the algorithms, are there... You know, written in Java or what yes. language? Yes, it's the heavy lifting. All the heavy lifting is completely written in Java because the machine learning world is a world of statisticians and maybe managers and data scientists, of course, data scientists. And these people are not all the time primarily coders. So they use Python, they use R, maybe some other stuff, but uh, a lot of them don't know Java. But Java is. Uh, as Cliff said once, fast enough. So we do it in Java and the client, the Python client and the R client is just a really, really thin, small client. And everything is uh, a REST API call, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, so typical algorithm implementations. So on which algorithm are you working right now? Or what are you doing right now? If it's open source, uh, you can tell it probably. Yes, yes, of course. We have a lot of them. We have, of course, supervised, unsupervised algorithms. We have a lot of uh, tree-based uh, algorithms like GBM. We have XGBoost integration right now. That's uh, it's not that fresh, but uh, yeah, it's it's a year ago. I would say it was stabilized. Mm -hmm. I might be lying, but uh, we have isolation random forest. We have uh, normal regression, uh, GLM. We have uh, of we have even old algorithms or uh, simpler algorithms like uh, naive bias prediction. Okay. So. So, and how this is implemented? So, the algorithm is implemented with plain Java SE. So, it's just you know plain Java classes. Uh, yes and no. Actually, there is a REST API, so mm -hmm. there are servlets and the pieces of Java E as well. But uh, we don't use dependency injection inside. And I would actually think as the platform as the three layers, two or maybe three. One is the REST API itself, mm -hmm. and it's it's one big. Or big. It's actually pretty small. It starts under a second on my mm -hmm. machine, and mm -hmm. it's really <laughs> a pleasure to develop it. But uh, it starts under a second, 
-hmm. And uh, then there is this REST API starting. Then you have this uh, distributed key value store with the distributed computational platform. And on top of it, there are classes with the machine learning business logic. So your uh, algorithms are somehow dependent on the distributed key value store, right? Yes, yes. And uh, is the API an, a map, Java Util map, or something different? Uh, I'm not sure I understand. So if you probably, if you use, for instance, Hazelcast or Infinispan. Oh, I see. So uh, what, what will happen is you, your API is more or less concurrent hash map, and the implementation comes with Hazelcast. So what interests me, is it the same in H2O case? No, H2O has a, its own implementation of everything. That was actually made by Cliff a long time ago, but not, not just him. And uh, what he did was uh, he optimized everything for speed. As he was the author of Hotspot, so he knew how to do it. So we have actually our own distributed hash map, mm -hmm. which is what? optimized for, for uh, speed, for reading. And uh, we have our own serialization. Yeah, but the hash map, if you, if you, I would like to use, you know, the key value store. Um, could I just, you know, use the Java Util map interface and your implementation, or you get another interface, you know? Yes, yes, it's it's uh, compatible with Java Util map. Yes. Okay, so this is actually great news. So what it means is my algorithm is not that dependent on your custom implementation. I could just test with regular hash map. Yes, yes, you you could you could do that. You could do that. Yeah, cool. So now, uh, now, now it becomes interesting because, I mean, this is like a really interesting company. Everything is in Java, so it's very easy to test. You can clone, you know, your GitHub repository and play around with AI, right? Yes, we do have a lot of unit tests there, among other tests as well. Uh, once you clone it, there is no, actually, there is no application server because what we have, what we, uh, how we did it is that the application itself contains only the pieces of Java EE that are necessary. So it, when it starts, it only starts servlets and a bunch of other stuff. And the other is just plain Java SE. Yes. Yeah. In your case, I probably get, I absolutely get it because you don't need, you know, most of the features. You only need POJOs with REST endpoint. And by the way, uh, what you should do one day, um, you heard about Quarkus. Uh, of course, I'm actually I was evaluating it, and now I'm using it on on one university project. Yeah, because it could be really interesting for this because uh, it does exactly that. It comes with just JAXRS and CDI and nothing else, and you could even create you know your own extensions, which will do with the algorithms which are pre-compiled, and then at runtime you only will get you know a more or less. It would look like a Go library, just a native image with. Uh, without any external dependency. So it will be even faster than now. But uh, yeah, but if you know it, perfect. It could be it could be really interesting, but at the time H2O was written, there was nothing like that. No, but now. It was 2012. You could wrap it because uh, in a few weeks ago, what I did, uh, we had uh, a um, crew of concepts. So I migrated, you know, in Java E project to Quarkus and it also worked. So it was not a big deal. It usually works out of the box almost. Yeah, we had some issues, you know, all the drivers and stuff, but it worked regardless. Okay, okay cool. Uh, now, because you are, you know, the, the unique mix of um, Java knowledge or Java knowledge and uh, AI. So um, let's say I would, I have uh, Pr uh, Prometheus or, or MicroProfile Matrix from, from my system. 
And I would like to, you know, to use your library, machine learning library, to find some, let's say, uh, anomalies. So, like uh, stuff which is which behaves strange, and uh, and uh, which algorithm or how to achieve that. So, I will collect the data. This is my my are my microprofile metrics. I could collect them every second, and then use one of your algorithms or libraries to find, you know, strange things in the behavior. So how how to do that? Uh, which which algorithm to choose? What you will suggest me to do? Yes, the short answer is IRF, Isolation Random Forest. That's a great algorithm for outlier detection. So this this is the one you could use. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the short answer. The longer is you would have to save it, uh, probably transform the data a little bit, uh, evaluate it. If it's um, what you what would you get? Just save the data was time series, so uh, you would first, with H2O, had to transform the data a little bit. I would say maybe clean them, check how many uh, missing data you have, etc., etc. All the proper stuff uh, a data scientist would do, and then just start H2O and uh, sorry, start the algorithm inside H2O, and that's it. Then wait for a couple of minutes based on how big your data is and. That's it. Yeah, the time series data would be already available because uh, it's a part of uh, Prometheus and it comes with InfluxDB, I think, internally. So there is already you no know, database available. So this would be yeah. not a big deal, right? So I could just, you know... With use... HTO, this wouldn't be a big deal. And we also have JDBC connectors as well. So you could just uh, provide the driver mm -hmm. if it's really a non-standard driver. Otherwise, we do... We are able to bundle some of them or handle some of the JDBC connections out of the box. And then you would just pretty much specify your SQL select statement and it would be imported into H2O. Okay. And uh, what, what was the name of the algorithm? Uh, IRF, Isolation Random Forest. Oh, this is the name on GitHub. So I will search for IRF H2, I will find something, right? Yes. Cool. And uh, do you have also something like, you know, um, I forgot the uh, Python uh, library, uh, like uh, you can recognize on you know, a vision recognition, like for instance, you can train to recognize people on pictures or something like that. Uh, no, we don't, we don't do that actually. Okay, why not? Because it's out of the, out of scope or it's not needed or? Uh, right now it's not needed by any of our customers, I would say, but I don't have the full picture right now as a developer. We do have a lot of customers, so maybe there are some requests, but uh, the main use case is uh, big businesses, insurance companies, banks, and for some reason, there is no no demand for that right but now. It's called, OpenCV is called, right, in Python, I think. This was the, uh, the imaging. Yeah, Open, OpenCV has a Python API, but the implementation, I believe, is in C. Yeah. Exactly. So nothing equivalent. Okay. Uh, no worries. And no, we, we don't do OpenCV right now. So, which other algorithms might be interesting? You know, for a Java application, something cool. So, what I could do with it? Uh, that's <laughs> cache hit. For for instance, I have a cache, and I could use AI you know, to predict which data should stick in the cache and which not. Yeah, this could be a really good uh, good uh, fit for some tree-based uh, algorithm like GBM. GBM one, okay. Oh, yeah, or or XGBoost, but GBM is the most used algorithm we have, by the way. And, okay. Uh, for, for, what, for what use cases? So for 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 what? Because Actually, you can use it to predict almost almost anything. If you have a 
binomial, multinomial um, response of any kind, or you have you do regression, then then you can use it. It's uh-huh. just a matter of organizing your data well. Okay, so give me some real world examples. Uh, real world example is predicting. Uh, I, I would say the best example is uh, on Kaggle, the the famous the famous with the famous data sets like airlines. So you can uh, predict airline uh, delay on departure on on, or you can I don't know predict uh, cancer remission. Okay. You can do, you can actually uh, you can even score. Uh, comments, for example, on Google reviews, and uh, let's say filter out the bad ones or the or spam. Okay, so um, what we could do, as just just listening to you, is, in uh, for instance, on um, application servers, there is a uh, incoming queue. So this is the processing queue, and if the queue is full, then some timeout happens. So this actually an Simple, simple correlation. But what I could do is to use the algorithm and, and monitor the incoming queue and predict when the server breaks down. Right? Yeah. Let's ask ourselves. This is perfect example for GBM. At least it looks like it. Let's ask ourselves what features, what what predictors do we have here? So you have a uh, the request which has several attributes, like the type of request, where does it come from. What's the current uh, load status on the application server? Maybe you even have information about the hardware resources available, right? So, mm-hmm. w- what else? What else? Uh, yeah, maybe the, inco- the 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 uh, you know the incoming queue, the processing queue is probably the most imp- interesting one because this is uh, if the queue we know we knew we know the capacity of the queue and uh, the total capacity, and we know we know the current state of the queue. So this is interesting. Then... Yeah, in the, in this case, it would probably depend on time heavily. So this is uh, really like an artificial example. So the most explanatory feature or, or the variable with the most importance would probably be time. Okay. Because patterns can be observed if you run a service like, I don't know, some REST API providing some general service, then time is usually the explanatory variable. So the processing time, you mean? Uh, no, the time the requests come to your uh, to your um, system, because you wanted to. If I understand you correctly, you want to predict the load of the server, right? Is not, the... not, yeah, the, uh, the load, and more interestingly, when the server breaks down. So, because what I know is, if the queue becomes full, and uh, there, uh, I get still incoming requests. In one point of time, I get timeouts. So, um, so in this particular case, I could use the algorithm. And actually, uh, with Prometheus, I could do this. I think the algorithm is called linear prediction. So uh, I have, you know, the the depth of the queue, and I know I know if the if it becomes full, and on this, you know, uh, if if it grows over time, and on this rate, it will probably break down. You know. Uh, yeah, this is a very simple. Very yeah, very simple. simple. Very simple. So I thought. Way you know, to predict. Yeah. But, but um, if you, if you are able to put more information inside the algorithm and use something more advanced, for example, the GBM, the general algorithm, and if you can feed it with uh, more details, like the type of the job that's actually being done right now, then you can more easily, more precisely predict uh, it, whether it's going to fail or, or not. Yeah, what we could do, for uh, for instance, what we would have on application server is uh, 
the uh, JDBC connection pool state. So how many connections? Then what we could also do is uh, if the microservice talks to another microservice, you know, the processing time of, of this connection. So this we also get for free. And we have the processing time of the JAXRS. So we actually, you could gather a lot of... Uh, yeah, and maybe, maybe you could even categorize the requests into at least a few categories. Uh, or maybe you could do it multiple times. You could uh, create categories based on, I don't know, the computing time. Could uh, categorize whether the request is going to hit the database or not, for example, and how many of them are there at the very specific time mm -hmm. you're, when you're doing the sampling. And yeah, this could be interesting, interesting, more interesting data. You could enhance the data set like that. And then you could get more really interesting features, and the predictions could be could be uh, much more precise. So fine. So we we have the GBM for uh, predictions when the server breaks down, or the you can predict the load of the server. Then we have the isolation for uh, to detect anomalies with uh, with microprofile-like metrics. What else could be interesting for Java developers? Or, or uh, not interesting, rather than you know, yeah, I know it. But uh, this, this the, the example with uh, airlines is a, is a, is a, is a nice one. So, do you have uh, similar examples for different algorithms where you can, you can? Actually, you can. The airlines is a pretty standard data set used by uh, teachers all over the world to teach uh, predictive statistics, and uh, you can use many algorithms on that. So mm -hmm. it's, this is not restricted to just rebased algorithms. You can, uh, it depends what you want to predict on the data set. You can use you know, normal, simple regression and that's it. How many algorithms in total are, are you implemented with H2? Uh, over a 10 right now. So which are they? So we can go briefly. So we have the isolation, the GBM. So what is the yes, next one? Then, then we have XGBoost, GLM, Naive. What, what is it? What, what is it? Uh, uh, slowly. So the next one, what was it? Uh, GLM. GLM for what? That's basically re regression. That's... Okay. For what would be useful? Let's say we have log uh, data. We have. Let's focus on Java E domain. So in Java E, what we will get? We have all the metrics from application server. We could, you know, use the log files, or let's say we could also access a database with. Uh... It could be useful for the very uh, same prediction you mentioned to predict the time when your server or your Java E server will fail. Okay. Crash. And uh, this, it could also be used for that. Uh, when uh, when to use GLM and when to use GBM? Uh, that's a really hard hard question with not so simple answer because uh, it's mainly about knowledge of the algorithm, which uh, I don't have a detailed knowledge of both of them. We usually have dedicated people to develop it. But uh, GBM is more explainable because the output of it is a decision tree and you can view it and you can actually see how the AI makes decisions uh, based on the data. Okay. So you, you can walk the tree and uh, this, this is one, one advantage of GBM. So if you need maximum explainability, then you would use GBM. Mm -hmm. And the GLM, so what do you get out is just the answer yes no or yes, whatever yes mm -hmm. you get the answer yes no or the number the, the predicted number or anything else okay so the next one is and for, you, one you know you know what what glm stands for uh yes yes yes, yes. uh G, sorry glm or gbm 
both the GBM. So what is GBM? Yeah, uh, GBM is gradient boosting machines, and GLM is generalized linear model. Okay, next one. Next one, did we mention XGBoost? No. Uh, okay, so XGBoost is a, I believe, a formerly Chinese project. Uh, uh, it's a project of uh, some academia research in, in China. And what we do in H2O is that we only provide, uh, or only, uh, we only provide uh, Java bindings to the library. We actually contribute to the GitHub project because XGBoost is also open source. So anybody can have a look, but it's written in C. So it has a JNI bindings mm -hmm. and uh, what we do actually, but H2O adds much more on top of it because you can do the feature engineering with H2O. XGBoost itself is just uh, another way of, of uh, creating decision trees, a pretty good way, but uh, it lacks some features. And if you wrap it with H2O, then you get all the features of H2O and then we just call the XGBoost for you. So uh, for what uh, XGBoost is uh, useful? It's the same as GBM. Okay. And what, uh, X, uh, what is Same the use case, not the okay. same algorithm. Okay. And the algorithms, uh, I would choose depending on the data quality, data size, and this is... Uh, actually, uh, XGBoost has one big advantage and that it works on GPU very well. It was designed with this in mind. So uh, if you can transform your data properly, which H2 will uh, take care of mostly, then you can run this uh, algorithm on GPU. And the result is also a decision tree. Okay, cool. Yeah, but it's, it's basically uh, what... What's the difference between GBM and XGBoost is how the numerical stuff works. It's about optimization because GBM is ultimately slower, but there are many, many versions of GBM. For example, there is light GBM, which is also very fast on, on CPU, but XGBoost mostly uh, it's parallelized on GPU. When okay. you can parallelize uh, the training phase. And if you have a data that's, that's suitable for the parallelized training, then you get a lot of time advantage. Cool. And so this is would probably explain why it's in C because uh, it will try to access you know, the GPU driver, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Exactly. And uh, But you could also do it with Java, right? With the NIO, you could actually access the, uh, the GPU as well, right? Uh, you could do that. Actually, XGBoost is not originally an H2O project, despite we contribute to it right now. So the decision was for some reason made like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I just uh, interested now in the uh, what's behind. So yeah, no. but it's it's perfectly possible in Java, I believe. Never so, tried it myself, but it's possible. Ah, my brother tried. So my brother just did a lot of stuff with uh, the uh, 3D and and Java, and he accessed everything from from NIO. So this is why I know it. Uh, memory map, map buff, buffers and other stuff. Java has excellent uh, OpenCL bindings, so something like that could be done. I'm not sure about NVIDIA, so I have no idea what's the status of, of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my brother wrote once and even an editor of the CUDA uh, stuff in Java, so in NetBeans plugin back then. So it's probably perfectly possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is the next algorithm? Uh, the next algorithm is uh, Word2Vec. Okay. I would say we'll just pick one, and and this is this works. Uh, put it really simply, uh, you give it an input text, and it will create vectors out of out of the data, mm -hmm. and it will basically compare 
then you can do some math on top of it. You can compare how uh, distant the vectors are, what's the angle between them, among them, and then you can then you can predict. Uh, for example, you can evaluate comments on on your on your block whether it's toxic or not. Yes, and, and this is also part of Elastic. I think Elastic Search has also the L two Vec and Hibernate Search. I guess both. You could do. Uh, they have both very uh, two Vec included, right? Uh, well, yes, yes. No, just because I use them already, and uh, we used to. I think to find similar, uh, similar text pieces or something for search with uh, Vertuvec. And Vertuvec is also, I think, uh, there's a famous example with the kink and, uh, I don't know, this is the the uh, the distance between vertices measure and vectors, right? Something like this. Yes. So You, you represent the set of vertices as a vector, then you do the mouse. Yeah. Cool. So this also included, so I would put, an, uh, the, the, the API of the algorithm looks like I, you get a string and what I get back is a number properly, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Actually, the string, you need one string is the a database of strings and then the uh, string which relates to the database and then I get a number back, I guess, something like this, right? And that's one way to represent it. Or if you use H2O, then the output would be much more uh, human readable. Cool. Okay. So this is what I also can imagine. So it's the next algorithm then. Uh, for example, of course, we have a neural network. So we have deep learning. Cool. Uh-huh. Which is also usable for all the, almost all the use cases we have mentioned. Only, again, the algorithm works really differently. You have a set, set of inputs, mm -hmm. uh, which might be all the features you have. Uh, depends on you. Depends on how you set the algorithm. And then you have uh, one output, uh, the prediction. Mm -hmm. And how it works behind the scenes? So if I feed you with the data, uh, are you generating code behind the scenes or how the model is captured? Because my understanding is I have to train the model and then I have the model, which is usually code, and then it can use the model, right? So there are like three phases. And um, so what happens? So do I get in-memory representation or do I get source code or what is my model in H2O? Uh, you get in the very first phase, you mentioned really correctly that you have these three phases. There might be more. Uh, you load the data into H2O, then you train the model, see some statistics, the performance of the model, then you can validate it. And at the time, the model still exists in memory in H2O and you can download it or export it, uh, and then reimport it into H2O again. And what's really cool is that you can export a uh, archive it's actually a zip archive that's directly usable in java yeah, so you can cool. so you get a jar more or less and i can just include it and then use it like api without no caring about the whole ai stuff it's just an api yes basically that, that's the main use case or one of the biggest use cases in the companies because you have a data scientist and you have experts on one domain i don't know for example insurance which is uh something I don't know anything about, for example, and imagine you're the engineer in the company and you have this uh, insurance expert who has been studying for five years and then doing it for, I don't know, another 20 years. So uh, he or she is a real expert and she creates the model, creates, um, verifies it, and then she just gives it to you. And I will just uh, call predict from Java and I yeah. get the prediction and so it's actually, a black box to me. Yeah, actually, so uh, in the real world, it would be like 
there's one application which creates the model. There will be a standalone application, mainly driven by experts. And then the application at one point will time will output the model, which could be checked in, let's say, to Nexus or whatever. And then we have our pipeline, which will check out the model, include it to our application, just test it, and this is like the our app, right? Yes, you can actually interchange it on the fly if if you want to. If you yeah. want to do it, no so problem. You don't, you don't need to restart it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so we can, of course, we can use, you know, we could uh, feed the model with the, which is a little bit boring, but we can uh, you know, feed it with uh, proper metrics. So, I mean, metrics of a uh, of a system which behaves correctly and then uh, show what is not correct. So we can use for categorization, right? Two buckets like the... When yes, the that's the perfect use case. Yeah, so we can use that. Also interesting, okay. So what is the next one? The next one would be... Da -da -da. Well, we have a we have a K means which I honestly don't know how works precisely. Been no, around for qu quite a while, and I haven't implemented it. So, but you know what what it could do. So, in theory, so this K means is also the same with different features, or actually, no. K means is uh, K means is, uh, unsupervised learning, I believe, and uh, I have no idea what it does. How how it does it? So, yeah, but unsupervised learning would mean uh, it would try. To, to, to find the answer without the learning phase, right? Yeah, no, with, uh, there is always a learning phase, yeah, but no with, learning, without the teacher. Without the teacher, right? So you, you give him the data and then uh, it learns and then at the end knows what to what to do, exactly. Yeah, hopefully knows, but yeah, that depends on you. Actually, there are lots of parameters. And set them If you set them correctly, then it will probably know. And if you don't know what you're doing, then it will probably fail. So that's what the driverless AI tries to uh, automatize. Yeah, and this is always the case. So what usually happens is you have to, you know, to use uh, a lot of functions um, and know about the algorithms of cleaning up the data. And then you should look at the result and then you decide, is it okay or not? Is this less exciting as one might think with the whole AI? It's more like statistics on steroids, right? Yes, yes, it's all statistics. It's predictive statistics on steroids. And it's not just... Uh... I mean, before you even do the prediction, good or you, maybe you should. It's a bold statement. Always check the data, check yeah. all the features, uh, what's the distribution, uh, how the data looks. So this is also possible in H2O. And then you do, you do the predictive statistics. And it's also a lot about uh, numerics, the numerical optimization inside the code. Mm -hmm. Cool. So we have k-means, which is uh, uh, driverless or uh, unsupervised learning. So the next one. No, you know driverless and unsupervised learning are two distinct. Oh, things, I thought actually. the driverless. Is, yeah. No. Is, yeah. You you actually mentioned that k-means is something that will uh, produce something without the learning phase. So mm -hmm. case there is always the the training phase. Okay. No, I meant driverless. This is what I said. That this that there driverless are, uh... is the is the other project. Ah, okay. And it automates the earlier parts like feature engineering, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So driverless is your commercial project. Yes. Yeah. Um what I meant uh uh the unsupervised uh, un unsupervised learning with um with uh K means. So what is the next algorithm? Uh isolation forest. Isolation Random Forest, which is also unsupervised, and this is the newest algo we have. Cool. Uh, uh -huh. I also wasn't implementing it, but this one is useful for the outlier detection you mentioned. So you can outlier. detect 
an anomalies in, in the data. And this is a newer, so it means it is faster, better, or what is the distinction to the first one? Uh, actually, the K-means, the first one, is not aimed towards outlier detection. So for this, we really have the isolation forest. So this yeah, is the, the main, main point of adding it. It's not faster, but the main point of having it is the outlier detection. If you yeah. want to do it, then you want isolation random forest. Because we mentioned at the very beginning an isolation uh, algorithm. I, th I think it was ALB, right? And there's the next one, isolation forest. So I already mentioned one. So we had to, we started with an isolation algorithm. Yeah. But okay. So now this is the newest one, and this is outlier de detection, like you know when uh, to detect when the system breaks, for instance. What is normal was not normal. Okay. Uh, this is the last one. No, actually, we have a. What we have is. Uh... Two more interesting features. Let's, for completeness, let's mention the naive bias algorithm, which is not really used in real world, uh, because you code naive because you assume there are no relationships between the features, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, it's usable. For example, you always ask for the examples. So uh, really simple spam detectors use this naive bias. Mm -hmm. So this okay. is this is how it works. Uh, then we have uh, stacking, so and we have AutoML, and this is really interesting. Those are two. It's not algorithm. It's about uh, combining the stacking. is about combi uh, combining the models into one. That's uh, maybe maybe depends more powerful than just one model. So you can, for example, create a GBM gradient boosting machine model, which is based on a decision tree. And uh, you're not satisfied with the results in some some areas, so you might create another another model for any specific reasons you have. For example, with GLM, because you know it will perform better in some areas, and then combine those two together, and HTO will create a stack model that will just use it uh, use both for prediction. And the combined prediction uh, is hopefully better than. The outcome of just one algorithm. So stack models like this is the composition of different algorithms, right? Yes, yes. So and this, this is also open and this is also an, an open source part. So yes, this is also part of the open source part. Very cool. And okay, so we had the uh, so we had the the, the stacked and the uh, biased. Uh, how it's called biased? Uh, what you said? Uh, naive bias, actually. Uh, it's, naive it's... bias, you know, naive bias. So, which is not usable because there are no relation, or, or not use, not that usable in the real world because there are no relation between features. And then we have this stack, which is composition of different algorithm. So, what is uh, the next one? Uh, the next one, it's really cool feature. It's called AutoML, and we have a separate team just for that, just developing that, uh, because this is basically open source driverless AI. It doesn't okay. do some all of the features driverless AI does. For example, the always mentioned feature engineering is not there yet. Mm -hmm. But uh, this will uh, how it works from user's perspective. You load the data into H two O, just give it to AutoML, and you say I want to predict this and that, mm -hmm. and that's it. You don't have to set anything except for uh, the maximum time you want to wait for. For example because there has to be some limit, which by default is an hour, I believe. And then it will run and it will try a different combination of features and it will try different models and compare the results, validate them. 
and then you get a model which uh, should perform really well. So it's automated. Mm -hmm. In which form would I provide the data? So let's say let's do something practical again. So um... uh, yeah, we we have a lot of connectors. Uh, you can use plain CSV, which okay. we by the way have a distributed parser for. Uh, that's a really cool feature uh, because you, you tend to have uh, the reality is customers have really big CSV yeah. like gigabytes of, of data. You could use any database that has a JDBC driver mm -hmm. uh, you could use uh, Amazon S3, you could use Google Cloud Storage that was actually uh, originally Google Cloud Storage connector sorry for the off topic was a community contribution on GitHub just had to polish it a little bit but uh, anyone is free to uh, contribute to H2. Yeah, cool. So th this was a contribution from one of our users. Uh, you can, of course, load from your local, uh, I don't know, TXT files if, if you feel like it. Uh, then we have uh, Hadoop file system connectors, integration, of course. That's uh, So what would be the simplest possible use case with simplest possible SQL table as input? And uh, the outcome. So I'm just you know searching for as simple as possible examples so that the listener could could do something. I believe something. I might might have some examples, and uh, just but there is no, yeah, just, there is no mm -hmm. there is no simple answer when it comes to the API because you can use R, Python, or we have a website interface to it. So let's say you choose the website interface. So then you just run H2O on your local machine. You just download it. It's a jar. So it's it's really simple to start with. You don't need a cluster, definitely. Mm -hmm. And uh, then just um, once you do Java jar H two O jar, it will um, it will start itself and it will give you the address of of the website. And you just click it, the website opens, of course. And then there is a button called data on the top of of the website, and you just choose import. And uh, that's it. And you write your SQL uh, statement inside, and it will import it. Okay, this is this is um, this is also okay. What I meant is rather, uh, let's say, forget about the user interface. It's just uh, what is the, uh, the interface to the data. So let's say I have a table with three columns. You know, so give me a simple example. What would be what could be the columns? So it could be. Let's focus on the application server. I can say um, I don't know method name. And processing time, and memory, cons uh, consume memory. This is what we could do, and we have millions of such uh, records. So what I will also need the outcome. So I will need you know to have to know that this is the input and what I expect as outcome, what I would like to predict. You know what I mean? This how the whole process would work. So I have a table with data, and then I need somehow you know the result to present to AutoML the result. So. Yeah, this... the result of the training phase, correct me if I don't understand you correctly, but uh, the result is the model, actually. The result is not saved into the database. Uh, you pick the features, you said you have hundreds of columns, so uh, you just you can just select the ones you want, for example, the memory usage at, at the time or the type of the request, the categorization yeah. we have been... So you have three talking. columns, three columns and hundreds of rows. So I have three columns, is like method name, let's say... Is execution speed and the last time memory execution as a memory consumption there are three columns which uh, is just like the statistic data of our application server right so this is uh like yes my... okay so then then you just write your select statement yeah select the three columns from 
blah blah blah. Yes. And uh, then you can do H2O auto ML yeah. uh, command, or you can just click it, and then you will need to specify uh, the predictors. Mm-hmm. So you name the three columns again. Then you specify the response column. The the that's the thing you want to predict. Okay, is it successful or not properly, right? So this would give you just boolean, so very simple. Yes, if it's binomial like that, then then you can, you, of course, mm-hmm. that's correct. And then it really depends on the algorithm. If you use AutoML, then that uh, you can leave everything to default and just uh, make it happen, make the magic happen. If you use some of the specific algorithms, then you can uh, specify, for example, the, for GBM, Let's pick this one. Uh, you can set the maximum number of trees it will create, the maximum depth of the tree, and then you can fine tune it. But you can leave everything to default. Yeah. So the minimal, the minimal use case would be just that. Yeah, but uh, actually, uh, if we expand it a little bit, it could be already interesting. What we could do is to provide a broader table. What I get is like, you know, my architecture, like the facade of the boundary, name of the method then uh, I, I would get performance of the method. I would uh, get uh, memory, not, not sure, because if I would just capture the logger, there would be no memory. But then what I could do is um, I could also see, you know, exception happen or not. So this would be Boolean, true or false. Yes. And um, and then also, which um, probably... Or you could would... categorize the type of exception. That's, yeah. It's better to capture the data in all the colors. Yeah, and then probably I will need you know a little bit more because this is just the the outside. I will probably would like to see which other methods were called, so this will be really valuable data for the production. Otherwise, it's probably nothing will come out. But uh, with that, this will be like you know just capturing the logger information. So if I would have a logger which uh, outputs uh, CSV, so I will already load it to your system and predict you know or see which inputs are problematic for the server, right? Yes, yes, this is perfectly possible. This is interesting. So this is somehow which I can imagine as Java Java developer. Yeah, you would have to label the data for GBM, of course. So you would have to uh, go through the data, and uh, naturally you would have the information whether it is problematic or not. This is yeah, what I have, mean by because if exception happens, it is problematic, right? Yeah, then you have the label, so then you can use this supervised uh, learning stuff and, uh, for example, pick the GBM you've been talking about. And uh, since you have the response, there is no problem. You yeah, could do interesting. That. But I could also use the AutoML for that, so I don't do, do nothing. I would just say... Yes, what AutoML will do is to try uh, many of the algorithms we have, uh, and one of them is GBM. So... How many rows of data, so how many log statements will I need to have a reasonable or no result? That depends on how many features would you have. Uh, not only, but uh, at least, I don't know, 30 observations per uh, feature. And if it's a categorical feature, then you have... Um, it depends on the cardinality of the domain. If you have a yeah, for me it's just you know, uh, will is it successful or not? It's just very simple statements. So yeah, have... but you, you have a lot of features. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, let's have a let's assume you have a category of request. And if you have ten categories, and you want to predict whether it's uh, problematic or not, then per each category you have to have at least few observations. 
you cannot have zero observations. You cannot, if you have 10 categories, you cannot have five rows yeah. in total. So, so for, to be concrete means uh, a category could be a method name. So for every method name, I would need at least 30 observations, right? Um, at least, I wouldn't say at least, but that's my rough guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you need, uh, actually, it doesn't really, uh, I don't want to say the more the better because that's not always the case. At some point, more data could actually hurt your model, mm -hmm. but uh, hundreds is okay. Okay. So this is actually an interesting case. So we covered all your interesting algorithms. Yeah, we do have some more minor algorithms, but uh, let's not go over them. Yeah, but uh, what what the listeners can do right now is to go to H2O. You know, they know the algorithms and check out you know the Maven module and try experimenting, right? Well, we use Gradle in H2O. So mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, Gradle is the same. So just use the Gradle module and start start experimenting, right? Yes, if you just clone it, there is a really nice README. Uh, for um, Actually, if you want the test, some of the JNET tests need some data to run. Because machine learning is all about data. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can use a Gradle task to synchronize it locally. It has, uh, I don't know, 100 megabytes maybe. I'm not sure. So uh, we have a small data set just for the test, and that's it. And then you can start. Yeah, cool. So you are really you are you are in a really interesting project, you know, in Prague, involved in a startup in Silicon Valley, and yeah. The only thing is, there any Java involved? Your JaxOS, you said it right. There is a JaxOS endpoint, and uh, uh, yes, kind of. But we have uh, our own serialization on top of it, so mostly serverless. We use Jetty internally. Cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's your next steps? So what you are planning, or what what? What is your, you know, one of the coolest project you heard about and you can talk about with uh, H2O and Java? Coolest? You mean like sub-project? Because this this is all I do right now. But no, re uh, re Real-world project. If you think about, you know, I, I don't know. So if I uh, if I spend time, you know, with technology, I always think, you know, what, what I could do with it. Now, oh, um, you mean the real-world use cases? Yeah, real-world yeah. use cases. So what was the, 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 the coolest one? Yeah, we do have uh, conferences. Uh, it's called H2O World, and on these conferences, I usually stand at the booth and you get to talk to so many interesting people. But the stories that really touch me the most are the healthcare uh, applications. Okay. If you can, for example, predict uh, cancer and uh, save some lives, then that's that's the ultimate reward for me. Yeah. The, the cancer prediction is actually uh, in the AI already better than the doctors can do, right? Yeah, I heard about some some applications in China which are really successful. But it's not just uh, healthcare. Healthcare is obvious. Uh, I met a guy in London and he's using AI to preserve some wildlife animals. And, uh, he's not the only one, actually. There is, there is a other guy in London which is interested in spiders. And okay. some 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 small animals, and uh, he uses AI to categorize them and uh, basically making their environment better. Okay, yeah, it is actually a cool story. So yeah, um, you, you have to be uh, besides being a data scientist, you also have to be an expert on the domain. So obviously, I don't know anything about no, spiders. No, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But uh, what uh, what you should do, you should uh, s send me links to the algorithms on the H2O. I will put it to the uh, show notes as well, your university. So um, I will put it to the podcast. So um, yes, a, qu 
We do have a, a really great documentation. It's not just a documentation for the sake of having one. Uh, we really have a good documentation with the explanation of each algorithm. And if you want to go uh, deep into the math, how each algorithm works, then we also have that. So yeah, cool. Docs.ho.ai, but I will provide the links as well. So thank you. And where do people can find you on the internet? GitHub, uh, Twitter, blog? On GitHub and on Twitter, basically. And I have a, I have a blog, uh, which is pavel.cool. Hey, cool. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really cool. You know, my last name is really, my German last name is really complicated. So just uh -huh. use that and it works. Uh -huh. Yeah, cool. And um, pavel.cool and uh, Twitter? Is uh, Twitter is actually my, my full name. It's Pavel Pscheidl. Okay, perfect. And uh, do you miss a little bit of the Java goodness in your project right now? Actually, we do have a, I do have a projects at the university and uh, I, yes, sometimes I do miss it, but <laughs> H2, H2 is mainly about algorithm, yeah, uh, sure. algorithms, There's low level stuff. So mm -hmm. sometimes when you write yourself a nice API really quickly, we do have some active projects at the university right now. One of them is actually closely coupled with uh, statistics. Okay. And it's, it's a, it's, we call it a cloud calculator and it will predict your cloud costs, uh, based on many, many, many inputs. And this is, uh, a Java E microprofile project. Uh, this is, yes, this is Java E8 microprofile project. And we do gather the inputs via REST API and we pump it into, uh, actually H2 directly. Okay. So listen. We are we are now late, but uh, I will I will have to reinvite you and just talk exclusively about the new you know H two O University Microprovide Java E project because uh, now we have the basis of you know statistics and or statistics AI a little bit and then we can talk um, about your university project, right? Yes, sure. I would be happy to do that. Okay, so thank you and uh, yeah, see you probably at Java User Group or at the university if you like. Uh, yeah, of course. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. And uh, see you hopefully really soon. Bye.